Good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's episode of Fireside Chat. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you're all doing well on this steamy evening. Um, I'm also hoping that the weather and the threat of a tornado in the mid-Atlantic won't interrupt our, our exciting session tonight, um, but if it does, we'll, we'll definitely try to reschedule. So our guest tonight is Emily Casey, who's going to talk for about 45, 40 minutes. I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Casey. She is an art historian who specializes in the early modern Atlantic world. Her current book project, Hydrographic Vision, representing the sea and British America, 1750 to 1800, critically examines British and American visual and material culture to reveal how the world's oceans became a space through which networks of empire and capital were imagined and constructed. Emily holds a PhD from the University of Delaware and an AB from Smith College. She has received grants and fellowships to support her research from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Smithsonian American Art Museum, and the Peabody Essex Museum, the National Maritime Museum in London as well. She was a program in early American Economy and Society Short-Term Fellow at the Library Company of Philadelphia in the fall of 2020. Her, presenta her presentation today is based on an article that will be published in the Winter Portfolio. Emily, thanks so much for joining us tonight, and you can take it away. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much to um, Emily for um, that introduction and for um, hosting um, tonight's fireside chat. Um, and thank you also um, to Deja, who's been working behind the scenes to make all of this possible. Um, I really appreciate um, both of you. Um, I'm going to uh, start sharing my screen. So, uh, Emily, are you able to confirm for me that you can just see my screen? Yep, looks good. Thank you. Um, okay, so as um, uh, Emily said today, I'm going to be talking about um, a painting in the collection of the library company, Liberty Displaying the Arts and Sciences. And I am going to be exploring this painting um, in the context of the Atlantic world in the period after the American Revo Revolution. So I want, again, to begin with some acknowledgments um, to thank um, all of the people at the library company who have been integral to doing this research and especially to my research fellowship this past fall. Um, I received really helpful support on my um, thinking on this painting in particular um, from uh, Jim Green as well as um, from Connie King. Um, and I'd also like to thank um, my colleagues uh, who have um, read and commented on drafts of the article that I've been developing. Um, their um, ideas have really been um, extremely helpful as I de uh, develop my um, thinking on this as well. Um, and I also want to begin with um, uh, an acknowledgement that this project was uh, researched and written on a 
the traditional lands of the Lenape people. And here I'm illustrating um, an artistic work um, by uh, the artist Dwayne Linklater, um, which actually can be found um, in Philadelphia down by the Delaware River. It's titled In Perpetuity, and it was originally designed to be installed in Penn Treaty Park and um, uh, along the Delaware. Um, and this parcel of land is the spot where a treaty of peace was made between Chief Hammond and William Penn. And while the park is now named for the English settler colonizer, who's also commemorated in Pennsylvania state's name, the place on the Lenape Wichituk, or the river of the Lenape, was a longtime space for meeting and diplomacy among the Lenape people. Um, and Linklater's work draws from the Lenape's treaty language, which asserts their commitment to peaceful coexistence on and with the land, as long as the creeks and rivers flow and the sun, moon, and stars endure. Over the course of the last three and a half centuries, this is a promise that has been broken many times by the white colonizers who claimed and intensively settled this land and violently massacred and displaced Lenape peoples. I want to recognize that my work, which focuses on the politics and culture of colonial regimes, is in tension with indigenous claims for sovereignty. And while the painting I'm going to discuss tonight, Liberty Display in the Arts and Sciences, is notable for the absence of Indigenous people in its ideation of an independent United States, Linklater's in perpetuity makes visible uh, Indigenous people's long and continued fight for sovereignty in Philadelphia and beyond. And it asks us to consider the relationship between these ongoing Indigenous justice movements and the conceptions of U.S. liberty and beneficence, which are espoused in the painting I'm going to talk about tonight. So this is Liberty Display in the Arts and Sciences, which if you have ever um, conducted research at the library company, you will doubtless recognize as it still hangs um, in the reading room, um, sort of looking over the research tables there today. So uh, Samuel Jennings' Liberty Display in the Arts and Sciences is a ubiquitous image in the history of the early United States. It is identified by the institutions who number versions of the painting in their collections as the first abolitionist painting in the United States. In it, we see a white woman dressed in white in the allegorical form of liberty, surrounded by symbols of refinement and culture in relation to two groups of kneeling and dancing people of color. A landscape in the distance depicts a body of water with ships on it. Although the picture has long been interpreted as an early American expression of the rights of people of African descent to freedom and education, its juxtaposition of a powerful white figure with supplicatory black people points to paternalistic ideas about black liberation that belie the, paint, belie the painting's progressive characterization. So tonight I'm going to put the work in um, the context of uh, its 18th century creation and display. While today it's often used to illustrate a kind of progressivist US abolitionism that's best associated with the 19th century, the painting was actually conceived in an 18th century transatlantic world that was bound together by culture, capital, and debates over slavery. And in this context, the work's anti-slavery sentiment is complicated by its turn uh, to racist tropes, as well as its audience's diverse investments in the profits of slavery. So over um, the course of my talk, I'm going to be exploring kind of three main themes in relation to this painting. 
Um, the first is the way it's embedded in uh, contemporary politics over, um, over slavery and the slave trade, and in particular, um, debates that are happening in Britain, which is where the artist is living at the time he makes this work. I'm also going to explore how it borrows from the visual language, not just of the anti-slavery movement, but also of pro-slavery advocates. Um, and this is a really important contribution I'm trying to make, is that instead of just seeing this work as talking to other um, kind of anti-slavery advocates and only borrowing sort of from visual languages or ideas from those anti-slavery movements, to see how it's also participating in a visual culture that is used by um, people who are supporting the institution of slavery as well. And this will allow us to sort of unpack how it's... Um, the, the works uh, artists and viewers, even as they may espouse anti-slavery perspectives, are also participating in a kind of a, an idea of white racial supremacy um, that is guiding some of those political movements. And finally, I'm going to try and network this painting within the geography of the Atlantic world. So one of the ways that I'm going to be doing this is by not only looking at the version of the painting that's in the library company's collection that is in pride of place in the reading room, but looking at two other versions of the work that Jennings made before and after the version that he sent to the library company. Um, now, the, uh, the one that he made after may be familiar to people because it's in the collection of Winterthur Museum in Delaware. Um, and uh, this is a smaller version of the work that was made in the hopes of um, a print being designed that would be um, published and sold. Um, but the uh, earlier version of the painting is lesser known. It came into the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art just in the last few years and is understood to be an oil study where Jennings is initially laying out some of his ideas about how the painting will work. So I'm going to be looking at some changes across these three versions in order to um, explore those three themes I named. So um, in looking at the way that this work um, participates in um, anti-slavery debates of this period, I'm going to be looking at the um, shift from the oil version to that at the library company in the depiction of this um, sculptural bust portrait that's in the foreground. Um, in exploring um, uh, how the work is networked across a uh, geography of the Atlantic world, I'm also going to be looking at changes in the background where Jennings initially places a pastoral landscape and then shifts it to a river view. And then finally, I'm going to be considering the point of view from which Jennings is painting um, by looking in the, the significant change in the uh, final version in Winterthur, where he adds um, a, a Britannic shield at the feet of the figure of liberty that kind of recodes that figure as an allegory of Britain instead of an allegory of liberty. So these are some of the changes that I'll be looking at to sort of explore um, some of the issues with how we understand this painting within um, debates around uh, slavery and the post-revolutionary Atlantic world in the late 18th century. So first, let's do a little bit of background. So Samuel Jennings is a Pennsylvania-born artist. Um, who in uh, 1787, like many Anglo-American artists before him, moves to England in order to continue his artistic education. 
and he receives a letter of introduction from Benjamin Franklin um, that puts him in touch with other Anglo-Americans living in London in this post-war moment. And significantly, it um, connects him with the um, artist Benjamin West, another Pennsylvania-born artist, who at this time has spent a significant portion of his career in London, um, and uh, later goes on to be the president of the Royal Academy, so really reaches the pinnacle of, um, of, uh, of British artistic um, prowess. Um, when he arrives in, in London, letters from Jennings indicate that he studies art both with Benjamin West as well as with the artist Gilbert Stuart. And uh, his letters also indicate that he not only was West's student, um, but that he also may have worked as one of his studio assistants for a time so that his hand is actually involved with some of the commissions that West is working on during this period. Um, he registers at the Royal Academy, which is the primary school of art in London during this period. Um, but the day books from the Royal Academy suggest that he um, is a fairly infrequent visitor. Um, so just by comparison, when I looked at these day books in the archival collections of the Royal Academy, um, the British artist uh, J.M.W. Turner is beginning his studies um, at the RA in the same years, and his name shows up repeatedly on a weekly regular basis in the day books, meaning that he's signing in to go to um, life drawing classes and to take advantage of the other resources of the academy. Um, by contrast, Jennings' name um, appears incredibly infrequently, which sort of suggests that he didn't go very often in the capacity of a student. Um, but Jennings did exhibit at the Royal Academy um, in their annual exhibitions. And over the course of his career, he's primarily um, producing biblical history paintings. Um, the one major exception to that is this painting, Liberty Dis Display in the Arts and Sciences, which I do categorize as a history painting. I'd be happy to talk about that more in the Q&A, um, but is, is the, the only sort of contemporary history painting that um, Jennings makes. And despite the hopes of his father and his supporters in Philadelphia that he would take his learning um, in London and bring it back to the United States to become a prominent American artist, the best we can tell Jennings passes the rest of his career in England. So in 1792, um, Jennings writes to his father proposing to make a painting for the library company um, on the occasion of their um, moving into a new building. And he forwards to the library company the suggestion that he would make an allegorical painting on the subject of Minerva, the goddess of wisdom and arts. And the library company responds through his father. They're very enthusiastic at the suggestion that he would make a painting for them, um, but they request that he pick the allegorical subject of liberty. And in addition to asking that he choose the subject of liberty, they also include specific language that links liberty not only to the recent um, uh, independence of the United States, but also to some of these anti-slavery movements that are happening in the, in the period. So I'm quoting from their letter back to him. They ask that he add, quote, a broken chain under her liberty's feet, and in the distant background, a group of Negroes sitting on the earth, or in some attitude expressive of ease and joy. So I want to highlight this um, right away, um, just to show that the, uh, that the uh, connection between the painting 
and slavery and liberation is something that is a part of the commission from the very beginning and is a specific request from the library company. And it's worth noting at this point that, you know, um, the library company at this moment, its board and its patrons are made up of a really diverse group of white um, elite uh, um, Anglo-Americans. And it includes people who are financially invested in or profiting from the institution of slavery, as well as people who are involved in anti-slavery politics and movements, and most particularly people who are part of the Society of Friends, better known as the Quakers. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's often this conception of a sort of very full-throated anti-slavery um, uh, expression in this work um, and on the part of the library company in this period. But I want to complicate that right away by saying the perspectives and the investments of the, um, of the uh, commissioners of this work are really diverse. And it includes people who um, either through their actions or their perspective are on multiple sides of the debate over um, the morality of slavery in this period. And that even in this moment, you know, it took many, many years for the, for the Quakers themselves to reach a, a place of consensus on um, anti-slavery politics. Um, and so even that is something that we can complicate um, at, rather than just presuming that, you know, the Quakers were automatically anti-slavery in this moment. Um, so uh, the next thing I want to highlight is that in his fulfillment of this request on the part of the library company, Jennings is really drawing on his engagement with specifically British debates over um, the slave trade and the institution of slavery. So while um, the commission is made, the request is made by this American group, Jennings is working in London and his perspective on anti-slavery movements is really embedded in that context. So we're now going to take a moment to look at that a little bit further. So in the period when um, Jennings is conceiving of and making this work in the early 1790s, this is a period of really active debates politically and among the public on, um, on the uh, topic of um, slave trade, of the slave trade particularly. In this period, the um, a British, white British abolitionist, William, William Wilberforce, annually is bringing resolutions to end the slave trade to Parliament. He does so in 1789, in 1791, and in 1792, the year the painting is made. Each of these resolutions fails. So while they really um, uplift the, uh, the public conversation about um, the morality of slavery and the viability of the British Empire's continued investment in slavery, um, they don't end the institution. In this same period, Parliament also approves an application um, from the Sierra Leone Company to create a colony of free Black people in coastal West Africa. So the Sierra Leone Company is a colonial endeavor that is looking to um, bring members of the African diaspora who've been living um, and working in bondage in North America um, and recolonize them in a West African uh, um, setting. 
And in particular, the Sierra Leone Company is operating in this period after the American Revolution, where, as you may know, um, the British had made commitments to, um, to Black individuals that if they um, came to the British side, the British would, would free them and um, would support uh, their um, sort of life outside of the United States. Um, and so the Sierra Leone Company is one sort of colonial endeavor to do that. In these same years as well, um, newspapers are actively covering um, uh, the, uh, the um, liberation movements of enslaved people in, in places like French Saint-Domingue, today known as Haiti, um, as well as events like the U.S. capture by El, um, the capture of a U.S. ship by Algerian pirates, which happens the year after the painting is made. And these um, events, this coverage really um, uh, stirs up white anxieties around the idea of, uh, of, of violence from enslaved people against the institution of slavery. So a lot of sort of white fears um, are um, activated by these liberation movements. Um, and this also generates a lot of um, sort of political activity on the part of plantation owners and those invested in plantations. And one of the things I'm showing on the screen here is the fact that an announcement for the exhibition of the Royal Academy in which um, Jennings shows liberty displaying the arts and sciences in London is printed in the newspaper directly above an announcement for a meeting of West India planters in the same period. So we can really see many ways in which Jennings painting is informed by these debates and also is being produced simultaneously with them um, at, during this period. So I wanna show some of the ways that um, the debates around um, uh, sort of anti-slavery politics may have entered the painting. And I'm gonna do that by showing you um, this satiric cartoon that was published in the same year Jennings made the work. And in it, we see William Wilberforce, um, the British abolitionist. He's the figure in the center who's dressed in black. And he is surrounded by an allegorical image of justice, as well as um, some uh, members of the plantocracy and a, a black figure who's meant to represent an enslaved individual. And the work is showing, it calls him the blind enthusiast, and it shows him sort of being egged on by this enslaved man to produce all of these parliamentary bills. And what we see in the background is a waterscape showing some of the islands of the Caribbean on fire. So the print is really suggesting that Wilberforce's political advocacy in Britain is sort of directly causing some of these rebellions in the Caribbean. And what I think is significant about this and how we can relate it to Jennings' painting is this idea of a sort of interconnected Atlantic world where events happening in one part of the Atlantic inform those happening elsewhere. And so just in the same way that the satiric print is drawing connections between London politics and, uh, and Caribbean um, uh, liber like enslaved liberation movements, we can also see uh, liberty displaying the arts and sciences um, connecting these different points in the Atlantic world to each other. So it's embedded in London politics, but it's getting sent to Philadelphia. And I want to actually broaden that beyond those two locales to some of the other places that are key in this moment. So um, among those is Sierra Leone and this project of the Sierra Leone Company. Now, previous uh, research on um, this work um, has uh, 
identified the bust in the foreground of the version at the library company as being that of Henry Thornton, who was the director of the Sierra Leone Company in the 1790s during this period. Um, and so if you are able to see the comparison between the portrait I have on the screen and the bust in the painting, you can see there's this sort of kind of severe um, hairstyle of his of the way his hair is dressed, as well as the um, kind of uh, line of his nose, even the direction of his face that really link um, this and suggest that it's a likeness. But it's worth noting that the um, bust shifts um, from the oil study to, um, to the, uh, the final version of the library company. And so while the presence of Thornton is itself a kind of inclusion of the Sierra Leone company in the picture, I have identified the bust in the oil version as being a portrait of another British abolitionist, Thomas Clarkson. And if you're looking at the comparison between his portrait on the screen and the bust in the oil version, you can see he has this sort of softer, fuller, curlier uh, wig that he's wearing and a kind of rounder face that I identify as being Clarkson. Clarkson was also an incredibly outspoken abolitionist, well known for his writings. Um, and he was also involved with the company. He was involved with the recruitment of free Black individuals who had escaped um, uh, enslavement in the, in the colonies that became the United States and were living in Nova Scotia in Canada. Um, and so uh, Clarkson himself was involved with the Sierra Leone Company because it was these um, uh, sort of Black British individuals in North America who were recruited to um, move to Sierra Leone. And so on the one hand, we can see the shift in these um, busts as sort of a, a move perhaps on Jennings' part from a sort of more radical abolitionist politics um, espoused by Clarkson's writing to a more institutional colonialist um, abolition um, uh, represented by Thornton's um, leadership in the Sierra Leone Company. But I really want to note that both uh, kind of put um, the, uh, put their idea about anti-slavery within the hands of white abolitionists whose projects often have this very paternalistic and racist um, overtones to them. So the idea of the Sierra Leone Company, this idea of sending Black people, quote unquote, back to Africa, um, displacing them from the places where many of those individuals had lived and grown up in North America, had a sort of, um, it was a colonialist enterprise in its own right. And the Sierra Leone Company is also really designed to create a viable um, free Black agrarian colony that will preserve Britain's sort of imperial um, financial might in the Atlantic world without slavery. So it's really replicating a lot of the processes of, of kind of a settler colonial empire um, while also trying to um, kind of do those under free terms. Um, I'm going to pass through uh, this image. I'm happy to talk more afterwards about some other evidence in the painting that links it to these kind of paternalistic social movements. Um, but I finally just want to kind of end this a discussion of the Sierra Leone Company by pointing to the landscape in the background of the painting. And again, as a reminder, um, this is a landscape that does not exist in the uh, oil study for the work that is now in the collection at the Met. So we know Jennings very purposefully added it. 
Um, and uh, in past scholarship, that um, landscape has often been assumed to place the painting in Philadelphia. Of course, um, uh, other elements, including the painting's life in, uh, in the library company links it with Philadelphia. But I'm just putting up that landscape next to a sort of very common view in the collection of the library company of, um, the, of the sort of arrival in Philadelphia by water to note some of the contrasts. Views of Philadelphia by water often highlight the city skyline and in particular the buildings, which are notably not part of um, the landscape in Jennings paintings. And I want to suggest that one better match is some of the well-known views of the arrival in Freetown in Sierra Leone from around the same period. And in fact, um, travel reports of people who go to Sierra Leone often write about this kind of very specific singular way that you're able to arrive um, in Freetown by water that includes moving up this um, river with the, these mountainous um, kind of tree-lined landscapes on either side. And so I don't want to make a hard and fast claim that this is representing Sierra Leone, but rather I, I want to sort of untether this painting from just belonging in Philadelphia and suggest that Jennings is, is really connecting it to these other locales in the Atlantic world that are key to the anti-slavery debate in this, um, in this period, and Sierra Leone um, among them. So now I'm going to move on to talk a little bit about how um, the painting is participating in visual cultures associated with both the anti-slavery movement and um, the pro-slavery movement. So shifting from a discussion of these busts and a landscape related to the Sierra Leone Company, um, uh, you know, open up to a larger discussion about what kinds of images of um, Black people in the Atlantic world is Jennings potentially looking to, um, to, create, um, to create the scene. Um, and by linking um, his sort of visual tropes to both pro and anti-slavery movements, I again want us to kind of unpack the racism that's often embedded in white anti-slavery advocacy. Um, that people, that white individuals in Britain and the United States can both oppose the institution of slavery while still supporting ideas of racial hierarchies that subjugate black people to white people. And that I think that's really apparent in this painting and that we can think more about it as we look to more of the kinds of images that it calls up. Um, and so uh, uh, as part of that, I just want to note some of the language Jennings uses. Um, he um, himself takes upon himself to add this group of figures in the foreground um, and uh, the, the sort of bowing, kneeling Black figures. And he writes to the library company that he chose to depict them paying homage to liberty for the boundless blessing they received from her. And I want to really highlight how um, incongruous that language is, given um, the state of anti-slavery efforts during this period. As I noted, Wilberforce's efforts to um, end the slave trade through parliamentary action fail over multiple years during this period. And um, slavery is in fact enshrined into the US Constitution at the foundation of the country. Um, and along with that, in both the United States as well as other parts of the Atlantic world, it's possible for Black people to move between places where they are considered free and places where they can be 
seized or re-enslaved um, because of some of the varying um, uh, laws around, um, around bondage and freedom. So this idea of a kind of boundless blessing of liberty is not the language that, for example, Black advocates for the end of the institution of slavery are using. That's not how um, uh, Black activists understand uh, liberty. It's rather language that's really linked to sort of white perceptions of what liberty is. And especially in this period after the revolution, we can see it as the kind of language that Anglo-American people in the US are using to describe their own independence um, from, uh, from uh, the British Empire. Um, and so it's important to note that Jennings particularly adds these figures, and he adds them using language and ideas about liberty that are really more associated with a kind of white politics than the experience of Black people in this time. And so one way we can see that is the echo between these figures and a very famous image of the abolitionist movement, um, this medallion, which is um, uh, produced by Wedgwood. Um, and it bears the title, Am I Not a Man and a Brother? And of course, while works like this were really key in spreading abolitionist ideology among the public, they also represent Black people as disempowered. Um, so the figure here is kneeling, is shackled, is raising his hands up in supplication and in terms that are very similar to what we see in Jennings painting. And this puts the power of liberation in the hands of white people and, um, and, and really relegates black people not to having agency in their own liberation, but rather as having to ask for it from a sort of white patron. Um, and so he, we can see some of those uh, kind of racist ideas even within the anti-slavery movement replicated in Jennings' work. I also want to turn to these dancing figures that the library company specifically asked for. Um, and first I want to note that one place I think Jennings may have looked for um, source material for this image are not just scenes that are set in North America, but those in um, the Caribbean. So Agostino Brunias is an Italian artist who's working um, in Britain, makes numerous visits to the Caribbean and um, paints scenes of life in the Caribbean. And here I'm showing one that shows um, both free and enslaved people of color um, dancing. Um, and so I think it's important to note that in drawing from these images, Jennings, who's set in London, would have seen Brunias's images at the Royal Academy, is not just drawing from US tropes, um, but rather from uh, kind of images that are in the larger Atlantic world. But of course, the idea of um, dancing um, enslaved Black people has a really um, kind of violent history within the institution of slavery. Um, uh, it was a form of forced exercise on slave ships during the Middle Passage. And um, also was uh, the, the sort of music and dance practices of people of African descent in the Americas were often used by pro-slavery advocates as um, evidence of, of the positive nature of slavery. And here I'm showing another print that was um, made alongside the earlier one I showed of Wilberforce called Cruelty and Oppression Abroad. And in this print, we see two British people um, who are looking on a Caribbean scene of um, Black uh, enslaved people dancing. And the one figure says, I have seen this repeatedly with my own eyes. They are a happy people. 
So while the library company may be asking for an image of sort of easeful, happy people of African descent to suggest the sort of boundless blessing of liberty, as Jennings says, it's really important to remember that that imagery is being leveraged by pro-slavery advocates as a way for justifying the continued use uh, institution of slavery. Um, and so its appearance in paintings like this really walks an edge between um, a sort of liberatory image of the Black experience and the replication of really racist tropes um, about Black people and about um, the institution of slavery um, itself. So I want to wrap up now um, in the next few minutes just by talking a little bit more about how this painting sort of exists um, within the Atlantic context um, that Jennings is working in between Britain and the United States in this period just after the American Revolution. And I want to again turn to the waterscape in the background, um, but instead of just talking about its location, talk about how, how Jennings adds these ships to it. So he writes, I've represented commerce by shipping, which I think adds to the beauty of the picture by leading the eye to a greater distance and acting as an intermediate object between the distant group of Negroes and the sky. For I have endeavored to conduct the eye through the picture in the most pleasing manner possible, beginning with the figure of liberty, which is the principal object of the picture, that together with the emblems which immediately surround her form the grand groups. And I think it's really important here, two things. First, that Jennings specifies he's added the ships in order to represent commerce. So again, we're moving um, to an emphasis on the Atlantic world as a place of trade and financial exchange and profit. And of course, the institution of slavery as it was um, developed and used by European empires is all about the production and accrual of wealth and profit. So Jennings is clearly really interested in imagining a prosperous um, uh, Atlantic world, albeit one that is going to be sort of sanitized of the stain of slavery. But I also think it's important that he talks about the addition of those ships in aesthetic terms. It adds to the beauty of the picture and it draws the eye, it connects the background, these, uh, these figures of Black individuals to liberty. So there's a straight line that Jennings draws between commerce, Black individuals, and liberty. And uh, it's worth again noting that this is intentional because it's an addition Jennings makes in the final painting. He's working through these ideas as he's making the work. Um, but I also wanna highlight again, that that association of black people with commerce and with shipping is integral to the slave trade. And is in fact a key part of some of the kind of um, didactic anti-slavery um, imagery that's coming out in this period. So here I'm showing um, a, a schematic called description of a slave ship, which is showing the way that African people are um, are stowed um, in the slave ship during the Middle Passage. Just to highlight that both in pro and anti-slavery realms, the association of Black people with ships is something that is often um, objectifying and anonymizing um, Black people into um, units of labor or into units of capital. And so even as Jennings is trying to, again, create this optimistic image of a free Atlantic world 
for uh, black and white people, some of the imagery and languages he's using is really replicating um, the kind of uh, capitalist imperial um, structures that, um, that, that create the institution of slavery itself. Finally, I wanna add um, that, as I mentioned at the beginning, in the final version of the work at Winchester, um, Jennings um, makes this addition of a Britannic shield. And so here again, I want to really question Jennings' perspective. He's making this work in, um, in London. He's embedded in British politics. Um, and we um, can imagine that he's hoping that the print will be directed to a British audience now that the finished painting is in um, the United States in Philadelphia. And so the addition of the shield also suggests, again, that his perspective on a free Atlantic world, his perspective on um, the uh, sort of um, uh, Atlantic uh, freed from slavery is coming from a British perspective. And this is really important in the period immediately after the revolution um, that, uh, you know, um, American um, here I'm just showing that that sort of the image of a, of a white woman with that Britannic shield is often an allegory for Britannia. Um, so it recodes that figure from Liberty to Britannia really quickly. Um, here we go. That, uh, that from a US perspective, um, the, the sort of scene and message of the painting is all about a kind of um, the, the, the perspective of the patrons of the library company as a, a sort of anti-slavery view of the future of the United States. And um, in fact, I'm now um, citing here from a, a, a person who reviews the painting in a Philadelphia newspaper, who um, again says, um, he talks about the ships as, um, as uh, being um, an exhibition of commerce unstained by slavery. So this kind of language is really celebrate, celebrating a kind of US perspective. But, um, but Jennings' addition of the Britannic Shield really reveals the way that he might be more invested um, or more responsive to British politics about this in this period when the US and Britain are still in kind of commercial conflict with each other. And when Britain sort of in the, in the period when they do eventually pass um, an act to abolish the, the trade in enslaved people, um, is really critical of the United States for its continued investment in the slave trade. Um, and so the issue of slavery in the post-revolutionary uh, era is a point of tension between Britain and the United States. Um, so it again complicates this idea of the painting as an American expression of liberation um, uh, and, and really shows how the painting is embedded in these um, British uh, cycles. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll kind of end here to make that point as well, comparing the work to a painting by Benjamin West, which you can sort of see embedded in this portrait here, and I'm gonna show you a better view of it here, which is depicting um, Britannia, uh, sort of welcoming in uh, those who remained loyal to the crown in the period after the revolution. And here it's, a, it's significant that West includes white Anglo-Americans like himself. He shows a portrait of himself right beside Britannia, but he also in shows um, uh, people of African descent, um, as well as indigenous people. And I said this in my land acknowledgement, but I think it's really significant that Jennings painting um, in its view of sort of a US liberatory Atlantic world does not depict um, indigenous people um, and, and sort of edits them out of the picture of the sort of American futures. Um, so I'm showing you this just to show the ways that Britain is really 
self-consciously thinking about, um, about slavery and indigenous sovereignty, even if they fail on a lot of those promises, they're incorporating that into the ways that the empire is evolving after the revolution. And I think we need to understand Jennings' painting as participating in those conversations more perhaps than they're uh, participating in um, purely American conversations around slavery and around um, liberty in the period after the revolution. Um, so I am going to um, end here, um, again, just by turning back to this globe and showing the ways that this painting points in so many different directions of the Atlantic world um, and is really trying to make them adhere into this unified image of a liberated Atlantic world. But I think as I hope to show, the tensions in the painting, the tensions in these transatlantic politics really uh, don't allow that kind of unification. And I'm hoping, um, you know, I'm honored to have to, through this talk, be part of larger conversations I know are happening at the library company about how we understand and interpret this painting um, in the 21st century. Um, but I, I hope that um, through this, we can really complicate some of our more comfortable assumptions um, about um, how the painting might be uh, representing a sort of um, positive abolitionist message and really understand some of the, the, the politics um, underneath it that that um, that uh, trouble that idea of a sort of pure, uh, simple anti-slavery message. So um, I'm going to uh, leave it there um, and I would welcome questions. Thank you so much for your time. Emily, thank you. That, that was really excellent. Um, you've done some really wonderful research. You did a great job distilling it into a fascinating and accessible presentation. And it certainly will make me look at that painting in, in new ways and more closely when I return to work tomorrow. Thank you. So the questions were rolling in as you were talking and we already have four. So if you're ready to move to the q and I'll go ahead and read them uh, out loud in the order that they were received. Let's see. So the first question comes from Natalie Damrauer. And I believe she presented this question when you were talking about uh, the changes in the busts in the foreground of, of two versions of the painting. So she asks, why was the background changed and why was the bust changed? Yeah, thank you so much for that, um, Natalie. Um, so, uh, you know, part of the challenge of working on this project is that while there are these letters between Jennings and the library company, which thankfully were recorded in the minutes of the library company board um, members, which is how I'm able to access and read them by um, looking um, through those in the reading room at the library company, I don't have like what I most want, which is Dear Diary entries by Jennings about why he's making the changes he's making. So I'm trying to make some suppositions based on some of these shifts I see without really being able to link intention to it. But as I said, because Jennings himself in his letter um, really explains that he chose to include the ships to make a link to commerce, I think we can see him looking at his initial view, um, which has this sort of more pastoral landscape and feeling like something's missing. Um, and I think that, you know, because as I said, he links that to um, sort of aesthetic ideas of beauty, what's missing for him is something that's artistic as well as um, symbolic. It's a message as well as the aesthetics. And in my kind of larger work, I argue 
that there's this problem that's bound up in trying to make artwork about slavery or the opposition of slavery, which is how to take such um, a kind of uh, violent, ugly subject matter and turn it into art, which is founded on ideas of aesthetics and especially in the 18th century ideas about aesthetic beauty. Um, and so I think he's really working on in an aesthetic way as well as in a um, kind of a, a symbolic way to, to put together this message that he's trying to create. And that I think is why he changes the landscape. The busts, again, I don't know. I mean, we don't have a lot of evidence of, of sort of who Jennings is hanging out with. It's worth noting that West himself is, is from a Quaker family and sort of at different times will um, kind of put on his Quakerism a little bit more than others. So it's possible through his contacts by Franklin and others in Philadelphia, Jennings is circulating in some of these um, Quaker groups that are really um, uh, espousing anti-slavery politics and that, you know, as he's learning more and reading more, he's playing with different ideas of the kind of association to make. Um, but I, I keep thinking about that and, and I won't ever have really any hard evidence about why he chooses to make those changes. But because they're both abolitionists, I think it really solidifies the idea that he is trying to embed this work in abolitionist politics. And they're both British. He's not picking American examples. And I think that's important too. Up next, we have a question from Warren Williams. He asks, did contemporary viewers see a clash between anti-slavery sentiment and neoclassical architecture with a connection to slave societies of Greece and Rome? That's such a great question. Um, and I would love to think more about that and read more about that. Um, I'd be really interested if there are period people writing about that. I mean, I will briefly say in response to this that um, I don't think, I, I mean, I think contemporary scholarship on ancient Greece and the Roman Empire now has become much more interested in um, its institutions of slavery and understanding them within the context of the empire. Um, I don't think, while I think people are aware of um, practices of enslavement in the, um, in the ancient world, I, I don't I don't know of examples of, of um, that really being as prevalent, especially in relation to an aesthetics of the classical world. And certainly, you know, neoclassicism in the United States is so much bound up in this idea of the United States kind of completing this sort of imperial progress that goes from Rome to Britain to the US, this idea of westward the course of empire and the United States really perfecting imperial ideals. And I actually think that the anti-slavery movements that Jennings is representing um, from a US perspective is all bound up in that, is, is you know, from the perspective of American abolitionists, this idea of perfecting the empire through sanitizing it of slavery is completely um, contiguous with their, their desire to emulate a kind of classical past. 
Um, and so certainly that neoclassical architecture in the painting is intentional. And one of the reviewers actually writes about it as sort of the solidity of the Temple of Liberty, that it's this established um, kind of realm. Um, and, and definitely the tropes of liberty, um, including the Phrygian cap, also have um, a kind of uh, genealogy to the ancient world. So I don't think those things are understood to be in contrast. But I do think that there's a lot we can think about if we think about them as being in conflict with each other um, that can that we can help understand this world better. Warren Wilson also asks if you have any anything to say about the column fragment in the foreground. Well, Natalie Damrauer uh, comments on the, the hood that's at, at the end of the long staff. So anything about the column column fragment or um, or the hood on the staff that you'd like to share? Yeah, absolutely. So um, that hood is meant to be a Phrygian cap, which is an emblem of liberty that is um, used by uh, um, American revolutionaries. It's used by French revolutionaries. And here, I think, is another one of the places where um, I see the liberty in the painting as really being a slippery liberty between like US independence um, and, um, and Black liberation in this period. Um, so that cap is a really would have been a very recognizable emblem of liberty. Um, but it, it was one that was really adopted by white American revolutionaries. And so it's sort of being adopted for a anti-slavery purpose here, but I think it's really more tied to a white politics. Um, if I may, because I figured out how I can read the questions too, I want to link Warren's question about the broken column to um, Stephen Peitzman wrote a question about the emblems of arts and sciences seem strewn about in a kind of disorder and also mentions this small broken column. And he asked, do you think this has any message about tensions or ambivalence or um, just the artist's technique? Um, and so I, I wanted to just call that in because I do actually think um, that it that there are these really varied and, and chaotic representations of culture in the picture. And I really read that disorder as being about the sort of inherent instability of this Atlantic world that Jennings is, is trying to evoke. It literally falls apart on the visual level. And I think this is one of my favorite, most fascinating things about history paintings. They're so weighted with ideology that often they're showing the stress points of um, the perspectives that they're trying to show. And so I think that the column, to go back to Warren's question, I, I don't know exactly what it's meant to evoke. It might just be a reference, again, to that ancient classical past. Its brokenness is, is evoking a kind of older um, order. But I do think it's significant, these kind of points of sort of brokenness or failure that to me, the more I look at the painting, kind of come more and more to the front. Um, and, um, and that the sort of crowded composition in which that um, element is found, I think adds to that sort of feeling of instability over the overall message of the work. Do you wanna go ahead and choose your next question? No, no, go ahead. You... I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's great, I'm glad you discovered that Q&A. Uh... Feature, okay. So you, okay. So you got Stephen's Stephen's question. Oh, we have a question from Laura Kime. Hi, Laura. Hi, Laura. Um, Laura says, "Thank you for your fascinating and expansive analysis of this painting and the imagery, Emily. I assume that a print was not created, as you did not include one in your talk. If I am correct, 
do you have any sense for why a printed image was not made? Yes, great question. Thank you, Laura. Um, so no, a print was not made. Um, we have evidence of um, Jennings advertising a subscription for a print. He sends um, that advertisement to um, a representative from the library company to advertise in the United States. Um, it is expensive to, to produce prints like this. And we can only imagine one was not made because it cost too much and there was not enough interest. Um, and this in fact touches on kind of something I was mentioning earlier in the Q&A, this inherent challenge of, um, of uh, creating aesthetic works about the institution of slavery. So um, anti-slavery advocates are trying to make popular artworks that um, will, uh, will appeal to audiences and spread the message, but trying to make something that is visually appealing on such a difficult, ugly subject is not really profitable and, and prints have to be profitable. Um, and so I think the, the lack of a print is again, another piece of, of the puzzle in understanding um, how the, the sort of limits of visual representation and aesthetics as tools of the anti-slavery movement in the late 18th century. Um, so we know Jennings tried to make a print. I think the inclusion of the Britannic Shield is incredibly business savvy of him because he knows he's going to be able to sell it better in Britain than the United States. So he's trying to make it more appealing to a British audience. Um, but ultimately, um, no print was made. We still have a few more questions. Are you okay with, with uh, possibly three more? Yeah. Right. Generated a lot of a lot of interest here. Um, Let's see, D. Andrews sub submits um, perhaps more of a comment. She says, excellent presentation, very astute. Not sure you're intending this, but note that Clarkson was deeply connected to the Quakers, but he was not himself a friend. Rather, he was an Anglican graduate of Cambridge U. I think you're absolutely correct that the image equals him. And it makes sense because he was the hero of the moment for abolitionists, a genuine celebrity, along with Wilberforce. Thanks so much for that, Dee. Um, I will receive any affirmation of my visual ID because that portion of this research was a lot of me kind of really neurotically looking at all of these different portraits and wondering if I'd got so deep into it that I was seeing things that weren't there. So I'm glad you see it as well. Um, and I think um, that you're making a couple of really important points. First of all, absolutely the kind of celebrity status of Clarkson. And I actually was comparing the busts for a time to portraits of Wilberforce as well, wondering if he was being depicted. Um, and so I think it actually makes that shift all the more interesting, considering the sort of star power Clarkson had um, compared to Thornton, what was going on there that Jennings would make those changes? Is it about someone he's talking to, something he's reading? Um, uh, it's also kind of worth noting that in this same period, Clarkson suffers a nervous breakdown because of the pressures of his, of his work and also just the impasse that he and Wilberforce and people like them feel that the anti-slavery movement has come to because it's um, not receiving any success in parliament. Um, and I think your point too about his sort of um, uh, kind of adjacency to the Quakers is helpful as well because again, 
you know, this painting is so associated with Quaker politics because of its location in Philadelphia, a historically, you know, city historically with a really um, significant Quaker population. But as I said, I think it's involved in those conversations, but it's involved in other conversations as well. And in both the anti-slavery movement and the Quaker movement, those are transatlantic conversations that don't end with the revolution. Um, but it also just sort of highlights that there's not this kind of one for one between Quakerism and anti-slavery. Um, and so I think your point just sort of adds to that um, understanding of the sort of nuance in putting these pieces together. So I really appreciate your feedback. He says, great answer. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and Natalie, uh says totally off topic, but is that a snake on the wall behind the moderator? Oh, that's the question for me. <laughs> it is, it is a, uh, an ass made from a rasp. So. <laughs> I was so worried that question was about the painting and I actually, I thought, yeah. <laughs> I'm so relieved it is about us. <laughs> yeah, oh, let's see. So it looks like, I think we covered all of the, the comments and questions here. What a really great, um, great array of questions and some really good, good answers. And again, just excellent research. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. And, and thank you also for all of these great questions. I really appreciate people taking time to be here this evening. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much for, for joining us tonight, uh, Emily, and of course the audience as well. Literally. Thanks for now.